Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles, flip on over to 1 John. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, let me kind of tell you where that is. That way, you're, as you're learning where different books of the Bible are, go all the way to the end of your Bible. You'll be in Revelation. And then just start working your way to the left. Um, Revelation, uh, right before that, is a tiny little book called Jude. Right before that are three really small books, Third John, Second John, and First John. We're going to go to First John, so it's way back towards the back. Uh, I hope that you'll bring your Bibles to church. If you don't have one, we want to give you one because we want you to have a real copy of God's Word in front of you. We put the scriptures on the screen, but I want you to be able to see it for yourself, underline it, take notes, and then go back and make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Um, we're, uh, we are really committed to being a gospel-centered church that continue to declare the truths of Jesus and the everyday stuff of life, and we want you on that journey to be learning how to navigate His words and His work and the Holy Scriptures in your own life too. And so bringing your Bible to church is a good way to do that because then we're interacting with it together and you're kind of learning how to use that and understand it together. And so uh, while you're finding your way over there, uh, to 1 John uh, chapter 1, uh, l- let's actually just start by reading these first four verses and I'll give you a little background on what's happening here uh, as we step into this conversation today. Uh, John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and we have touched with our own hands, concerning the word of life. Say word of life. That's his way of saying, I'm talking about the word of life. And some of your Bibles even took the liberty to capitalize word of life because what John is referring to is Jesus. He's just calling Jesus the word of life. And he's reminding us, man, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've experienced him this word of life that I'm talking about. And John will continue to use that same kind of imagery, calling Jesus the word of life or life or eternal life. Every time he says one of those words in this next few verses, he's referring to Jesus. You'll see what I'm talking about. So he says, I'm talking about the word of life, who is Jesus. That life, Jesus, was made manifest, so available, um, clearly visible. um, You know, everything that manifest would mean for that was made manifest to us. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, definitely talking about Jesus, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's as far as we're gonna go today in our study of 1 John. Let me give you a little background on what's happening here. When John wrote these words, we're talking about, it's about 60 years removed from what we celebrated last weekend, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A lot has changed in 60 years. And as a matter of fact, John is the last living of the original apostles that actually walk with Jesus. Of the 12, he's the only one that's still alive. All of them have died horrific deaths and been martyred for the sake of the gospel. Not just them, but up to, I mean, we're coming to the end of the first century at this point. The death toll of Christian martyrs is clicking up somewhere close to about a million at this point in history. I mean, 
many of the people that you would have known and loved were you a follower of Christ at this point, if they were also followers of Christ, there's a good chance you knew a ton of people who had been viciously murdered for the sake of the gospel going forward, who refused to renounce the power of Jesus Christ and their trust that he truly had risen from the dead, which is just amazing because like even of the 12 apostles, like not a single one of them stood with Jesus the night that he was betrayed. There was not a single one of them. You, thought, you would have thought all of them should have been standing in the crowd the day that they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And the apostles should have been there saying, no, no, set him free, set him free. But everybody ran and scattered. They were terrified. They were hiding in their holes, trying to stay away from Jesus because they didn't want to die like he was about to die. And then something happened after Jesus was raised from the dead, those same 12, along with a myriad of other people who experienced the power of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, said, we ain't going back no matter what. You can take our lives, but we will not renounce who we have seen. And John reminds us, we, remember God, man, we've seen him, we saw him, we've touched him, we've experienced him. Some of you guys even ate fish sandwiches with him after his resurrection. Because he wasn't just some spirit body walking around. Jesus kicked around Jerusalem for 40 days. People had meals with him. Some people even got to see the scars in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. And like he was alive. There was no denying it. And John's trying to bring us back to remembering that reality. In so many ways, John is kind of the voice of the martyrs at this particular point as he's writing the Bible. Now, John wrote the book of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote... Revelation. His goal in writing the book of John was to convert sinners. He wanted people to know the love story of Jesus. That's in John is where we get John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Like John wanted people to understand the love of Christ and be transformed. Now in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, he is trying to confirm the saints. He's trying to remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus because now 60 years removed, of Jesus' resurrection. I mentioned a lot had changed. Well, there's been a rise in false teachers. There's been a lot of twists and variations to what, what at one time had commonly been accepted as the truth. Now folks are kind of throwing in their own twists and spins and, and John is reminding us like, no, we need, to, we need to stay tethered to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that is the only truth, not all these variations that you guys are hearing. And he, and he writes this to some house churches in his area to try to encourage them in faithfulness. John has four big goals. For those of you that are going to do the deep dive on your own, you know we're studying the book of 1 John, so you know we're going to be getting to all the chapters and verses. So some of y'all may want to study on your own. Let me give you just, let me tee you up with the four main ideas of the book of John, all which kind of culminate with the fourth big principle. Um, number one, write this down if you're a studier on your own, and I would encourage you, all of you to do that. But number one, he wants to promote joy. We just read that in chapter one, verse four. A people who had seen many of their friends and loved ones who are also followers of Jesus needed to be reminded of the joy of their salvation. Maybe your story is not as horrific as John's and his friends and neighbors, but maybe you have gone through enough in life, enough hardship and trouble and heartache that you need to be reminded of the joy of your salvation by taking another look at Jesus and reconnecting with him in a fresh and a new way. John wants to promote joy in the life of the believer. The second thing, he wants to prevent sin in the life of the believer. We'll get into that next week some in chapter two. Um, but John really, uh, let's be honest, 
Even if you have given your life to Christ and you've been forgiven for your past, present, and future sins and your hope is in heaven because of what Jesus has done and you long for the day you get to be with him in glory, the reality is that sin is still always crouching at the door, ain't it? Though we have been set free from the power of sin, the presence of sin still is all around us all the time. Uh, and, and even those of you that are learning to walk faithfully in this new life that you have in Christ, sin, sin is a challenge, isn't it? And John wants to remind believers that even though all that gospel reality is true, that they have been set free from the penalty of sin and that power over their life, the reality is its presence is still around us all the time. And even good, faithful Christ followers who are willing to give their life for the gospel, we still slip back and forth into sin sometimes. We still have sin issues, not just in our behaviors, but sometimes in our habits and patterns and beliefs that we need to be constantly confronted with the truth of God's word so that those sins are revealed to us so that we can keep bringing those before Jesus, repenting, turning from those bad doing things and bad believing things in our life and to continue to walk in this freedom that we have received in Christ. So that's the second thing. The third thing, he wants to protect us from false teachers. Um, they had a lot of them then, and they were just 60 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus. We have even more of them now. And quite frankly, one of their struggles, a similar struggle to us, is how do we identify who's telling the truth and who's not? Because everybody seems pretty passionate about it. A lot of them are actually using the scriptures and saying, well, what that scripture really means in the Hebrew and the Greek is this and that. And we have a hard time discerning like false uh, falsehood from truth. And so John wants to help us be able to look through the right lenses so that we can be able to tell what really is the truth of the word of God and not succumb to the false teaching in our lives. Some of that, we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. And I think it's gonna be, it's gonna upset the apple cart for quite a few of us, which I'm always excited about. I think that's great. Uh, last but not least, the fourth main theme for those of you that are going to study on your own. This is really kind of the culminating theme of all that John is telling us here. He wants to provide assurance for our salvation. Let me, let me show you kind of where he ends this book. We'll begin with the end in mind. 1 John 5, 13, I believe it is. Yeah, 1 John 5, 13, John goes as far as saying, I have written these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know. And he's gonna to talk to us throughout this book so that we can know and or by extension so that we know if we don't have eternal life. John wants it to be crystal clear in the life of the person who either, either is a skeptic or a full-fledged believer. This is what it means for us to know and have assurance in the salvation that we received in Christ Jesus or have clarity in the fact that you don't actually know him even though you thought you did because maybe religion has had so such deep roots in your life that you have actually missed the gospel of Jesus Christ because of just a lifetime of religion. And first John, John's trying to break down the walls and remove the scales from our eyes. So <clears throat> with that purpose in mind that you may know that you have eternal life, this whole idea of assurance of salvation, or some would call it eternal security. Like this is a, this has grown over the last 200, it's, it's, it's been a debated topic for longer than the last 200 years, but it is like catapulted within the last 200 years where a lot of d doctrines and denominations try to push back on the idea that we could legitimately know and have assurance in our salvation. Well, John would disagree with them. He's saying, I've written these things to you so that you can know that you have eternal life. Don't you wanna know if you do or if you don't so you can do something about it? Well, John wants you to know. 
And so John says these words to us and everything that he's gonna teach us here is kind of aiming us towards that trajectory. And I think that, I think the debate continues to get hotter and hotter and more prevalent because honestly, I think it's a result of Christian leaders who are fearful that if people are too secure in their salvation, if they are too assured in the finished work of Jesus Christ in their life, that it's gonna drive them towards more sin. In other words, if they have too much confidence that Jesus' work has been completed in them, then it's gonna kind of let them off the hook from righteous, holy, moral living. That's a fear posture, not a truth posture. The reality of it is, is if your understanding of the magnitude of the grace and love of Jesus Christ has driven you to feel more free to live a life of sin, then you don't understand the magnitude of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. We don't have to make up bad theology and religion to try to shame people back to Jesus because that doesn't work either. What we need is the truth of the power of the gospel and trust the Holy Spirit to flip the light switch on in people's hearts so that they can hear it and receive it so that they can know that they are saved, know that they have been forgiven, know that they have been set free and a right view of that will always drive you towards Jesus and not towards sin. The Bible's very clear on that. Galatians 5, Romans 6, like we don't even need to go into that. It's just simple Bible economics to me. Like if you had a right understanding of the love of Christ for you, you would always run towards him and not towards your sin. You would see him as Lord and King in all the things of life. And so with that said, since we are gonna be taking that close look of how we can know, John is gonna, he's gonna kind of have us look up under some rocks in our heart that maybe we've never looked under before or maybe we haven't looked under in a long time because we feel like we've kind of got that thing whipped. And he's gonna look under three really big rocks in our heart throughout this book. Rock number one is our view of Jesus Christ. We gotta take a long, hard look at that. I know so many folks have kind of like stiff-armed our gospel basics curriculum because they feel like, oh no, that's just for new believers. Oh no, it ain't. Like when we take a close look at the gospel yet again in our lives, like it, it lifts up that rock to make sure we have a right view of Christ Jesus and his finished work and it will change your life. It changed the lives of our elder team when we walked through it together just a few years ago. And so we're gonna, lift up the rock and look, make sure we have a right view of Jesus. We're also gonna lift up the rock. John's gonna get into talking about our view of obedience to the commands of God in our life. Uh, We're gonna take a close look at our relationship to sin and our relationship to God's calling on the life of the believer um, and how that works with the work of Jesus in our life. And John's gonna talk about that. And then last but not least, he's gonna have us look under the rock of our view of loving others um, and, and not through the lens of this cultural wishy-washy view of love that gets crammed down your throat every time you turn the TV on, but actual agape Jesus kind of love that many people say they know and understand. But the reality is the Bible teaches us what that love looks like. And John is gonna make us take a hard look at the love that is being displayed in and through our lives to make sure it is in fact that Christ kind of love. And he's gonna show that as a barometer so that we can know if we're actually walking with Jesus or if our love is an indicator that we're not. And we'll talk about all that stuff throughout the process. But look where John starts. He starts by saying, That which was from the beginning, verse one, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our own hands concerning 
the word of life. Who's the word of life? Yeah, very good. That's what he's talking about, Jesus right there. And um, this first statement from John really is a first big step in blowing up some of what the heretics were, heretics were already saying in that culture. Kind of, kind of a double-edged sword. John is reminding them that, hey, like just in case you forgot, like I'm the last of the apostles who is living, who actually walked with and lived with Jesus. And, and some of these people around us actually remember touching him and hearing from him and having meals with him. And he's just calling us back to the reality of like, let's, let's walk away from some of this false teaching and false thinking. Let's go back to what Jesus said. Remember his work, remember his words. And so he calls us back to that. And this in so many ways is blowing up a lot of the heresy of the day because one of the biggest issues of the day was kind of this issue of Gnosticism where some of the false teachers were trying to separate the humanity of Jesus from the divinity of Jesus. In other words, they were trying, and that's still common today, they were trying to convince people that the Jesus of history was different than the Jesus of the Christian faith. So in other words, trying to persuade people that the Jesus of the Christian faith was just kind of a figment of your religious imagination as all other religions are, but the Jesus of history was not the same guy. Let me, let me help you, just like John wanted to blow that up for him. He was reminding them that it's the same guy. So much so that this word of life was with God, came from God, was manifested to us. Don't forget, like we talked to him, we saw him, we saw his resurrection. This was God who stepped into our story and put on skin to live life with us and suffer with us and to die for us. Like this is Christ. This is the real one. You know, this Jesus lived his whole life and did all of his ministry publicly. Unlike every false religion in the world that was conceived or conjured up through a vision privately and then shared with people publicly. Jesus was born publicly, lived publicly, performed miracles publicly, preached publicly, died publicly, was resurrected publicly, walked around for 40 days publicly in Jerusalem publicly. Met with hundreds of people. Like he is the one true king. There is none like him. Jesus never wrote a book, yet more literature is written about him than any other topic in the history of the world. Jesus never wrote music, but there are more songs written and sung about him than any other topic in the history of the world. Jesus never painted a picture, but yet there is more art that has been created about him than any other subject in the history of the world. Jesus never traveled more than 100 miles from where he was born, and yet he has followers in every corner of the planet. An unbelieving world restructured time around Jesus. That's why we have BC, which is before Christ, and AD, which is Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. This is the one true king of heaven and earth. He is the only one worthy of worship, and everything else is a lie. It's been proven by time and science and history, and the word of God just continues to affirm it for us. John wants to remind us in that first verse of the reality of those things. And interestingly enough, like since John's big goal in this book is that we would know that we have eternal life, that you would have assurance that you actually are saved and have been forgiven from your sins and that Jesus is Lord and that heaven is your future. His goal in getting us to know that by the end of the book, he actually starts out in verse two with like this deeply theological and frankly highly debated theological reality. And this is how he puts it. I'll, I'll summarize it for you a little bit. Because he want, he's, if we're ever going to arrive at really knowing, 
that we truly have been saved and set free by Christ, then we have to start by looking through the right lenses about salvation, who authored it and where it came from. And he says this in verse two, the life, Jesus, was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you this eternal life, Jesus, which was with the Father, Jesus, and was made manifest, available, clear, to us, let me summarize it for you in these words right here, and I wanna put it on the screen so you can write it down if you're a note taker. What John is saying to us right here is Jesus both is and gives eternal life. If you can ever know for sure, if you're gonna ever be able to know that you know that you know that you have eternal life with Christ Jesus, John says we probably better start here. Salvation begins with Christ Jesus. He both is Salvation, he is eternal life and he gives salvation and gives eternal life. This is a good reminder for us in some of our bad theology. Like the whole redemption story of Jesus coming to earth and the gospel, all the good news of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and being resurrected and us being able to be in heaven with him one day. Like That whole story does not begin with our depravity in Genesis chapter three. It begins with the glory of God in Genesis chapter one. You hear what I'm saying? This whole redemption story has less to do with our depravity and everything to do with the glory of God. This was God bringing glory to himself and the great things that he had done by loving the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, God didn't react to Adam and Eve and humanity bringing sin into the world. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. God wasn't just like reacting to our bad decisions. God had already built a plan to bring about the most glory to himself throughout this whole thing called creation. And we just got caught up in the crosshairs of his love for the world that he was going to eventually make all things new. And us being transformed is a part of the story of God's glory. You need to know that so that you can be reminded that this ain't about you. This is about him. And it always has been about him. Our transformation is a part of God bringing glory to himself throughout the ages. And that's good news. That, that, that idea, that affects a lot of things that we believe and a lot of things that we see and the way we respond to each other, listen, this is, this is literally what John's getting at here is that Jesus was the initiator of our salvation. Jesus is eternal life and gives eternal life. Jesus was the initiator. This was all about the glory of God. This is really important. This may seem like semantics to some of y'all, but I'm telling you if, you, if you ride this train with me, you're gonna see why it ain't semantics and why this will change your life. If you, it, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would flick the light switch of our heart on that we better hear the words of God today and be transformed because I want you to hear this, oh skeptic, oh religious churchgoer that's got perfect attendance for decades, we all need to be transformed by this truth that John starts out with, that Jesus is and gives eternal life. He is the initiator of our salvation in our lives because this has all been about the glory of God from the beginning. John actually goes as far to say in chapter four, verse 19, this little nugget that summarizes it well as well. He says that we love God because he first loved us. 
Who in that equation was the initiator and who was the recipient, the responder? We love God simply and only because what? He first loved us. He was the initiator. His love went first. It was him and his divine love for you that causes him to stand at the door and knock and call into the tomb of, of us as Lazarus is to come from death to life. It was him who was, took the initiative to prompt our heart to see and experience and be transformed by him. It was his love that went first in that process. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two goes on to put it like this. I'm kind of, you, you can, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. I don't want you to miss that. When we look to Jesus, he is two things, according to the writer of Hebrews. He is the founder or the author. What does it mean to be the founder of something or the author of something? You initiated it, you created it, you started it, you were the cause of it. This Jesus, he is the founder, the cause, and the perfecter. So he's the finisher. He's the one that brings it to completion. He's the one that allows it to grow and flourish. He is the founder and the perfecter of our what? Our faith. Well, I thought Jesus was the one that did the work on the cross, died and was resurrected so we could be forgiven for sins, but the faith part was up to me. I thought I was the author and the perfecter of my faith. I thought it was my job to conjure up enough faith and enough courage as a kid to walk the aisle and pray the magical prayer. No, no, according to the scriptures, not only is John telling us this in 1 John, but here we have the writer of Hebrews saying, no, Jesus, he did the faith thing for you too. He not only completed the work, but he's also the one that authored the faith in your heart. We see this also from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter two. Check this out. These famous gospel verses, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Wait a minute, what's not of my own doing that is a gift from God? Well, the grace, the salvation, and the faith, all of it not of your own doing, a gift from God. It's not of your own doing, it is a gift from God. Even the faith that you had to receive the gospel was not of your own doing, it was a gift from God. It's not a result of your works. Even you thinking you drummed up enough faith to believe or did enough research to finally get it, it's not a result of your works so that no one can boast. You had nothing to do with this. Jesus stepped into your story he authored a faith in your heart to be able to receive the transformative gospel of Jesus Christ. Still, still don't believe me? Well, Paul said something related to this as well in Romans chapter 12, verse three. In Romans chapter 12, verse three, he tells us, it's by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of what? A faith that who has assigned? Who assigned the faith? Are you sure? I thought the faith part was up to you. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? I know that this, John launches into this like deeply theological and highly contested gospel reality. But this is just what the word of God teaches us. This is why the gospel is such good news. 
It wasn't Jesus did his part, now I gotta figure out how to do my part for this whole thing to work. He was the beginning of it, he is the, the perfecter of it, and he will be the end of all things, because this is all about the glory of God, not about your depravity, it's about his glory. It started there, it's gonna end there, trust me. We just get caught in the crosshairs right in the middle because of his great love for us. Isn't that good news? Man, that's really good news. Um, now, John's point here is saying like, hey, if you're ever going to get to a place where you know that you have eternal life, then you need to start out by knowing that it didn't start with you. It won't be sustained by you. That was Jesus at work. He's the one that drew you. He's the one that allowed your heart to long for him, to receive his word and his work. And he's the one that will sustain you and keep you in the process. We see that in the book of Jude. We see that all throughout the scriptures, that he is the author and the sustainer over the whole thing. Now, um, why that's so important. I told you, let, let's get into the why that matters. Uh, some, some of y'all, the light bulb has already come on in your heart and, and you have just been set free by seeing the reality of the gospel of Jesus, not some bad old timey religion that was trying to shame you and guilt you and sin preach you and hell preach you into heaven. Um, that doesn't work. Our salvation doesn't come as a result of us feeling bad enough about our sin. Our salvation doesn't come as a result of us being scared enough of hell. Who is the Savior? The real gospel message is meant to magnify Jesus, that our affections will be in him. Sure, we need to talk about sin and hell. We need to have an awareness of that, but that's not the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece. He is the one who is bringing about the transformation in us, so we want to continue to magnify him and lift him up because he told us, when I'm high and lifted up, all, all people will be drawn unto me. So we're going to magnify and lift up the name of Jesus. Now, why this matters, it's not just a semantics thing, whether, whether God initiated salvation with you or whether you, you initiated it with him or if, if he loved you first or you love him first. Like, wh why this matters, and it's not just a matter of semantics, because if you have a right gospel view of it, it'll change your life. It'll change the way you see yourself. It'll change the way you see other people. It'll change your relationship to your sin issues. It'll change the way you view God. And just to kind of prove that to you, let me just show you the contrasting difference between the lives of those who believe that they had something to do with initiating their salvation, that it was them who garnered up enough faith or courage to trust in the message, or those of you that feel like you have to work your way to God's good graces. I mean, there's a whole variety of bad religion on that scale. Versus the people who have actually understood and received the gospel and now get to walk in the freedom of Christ because recognizing that he's the beginning, the middle, and the end of the whole thing. Let me give you an example. Uh, so we'll call this, we're going to compare the religion versus the gospel. It's what John's trying to do because he wants us to know that we have eternal life, know that we have been saved. He's making a contrast early. So religion, basically religion teaches and the, the, uh, the religious posture of someone's heart is that Salvation is earned based on what you do for God. Now, you may not go as far as saying, well, I wouldn't say that. Jesus did the work. Jesus finished the work. I know that I don't have to like behave my way into his good graces. Yeah, but did, did you think that you were the one who had to garner up the faith? That you were the one who authored your own faith? That you were the one who ascribed and assigned to yourself the faith to believe it? then there's gonna be an element of religion in your life because you feel somewhere back in your heart, now you would never admit this, but your heart keeps telling you that in some way you achieved this salvation. 
Now the gospel says salvation is a free gift based on what God has done for you. The gospel teaches I have received. Religion teaches I have achieved salvation. The gospel teaches I have received salvation. I was just, I was simply, it was a response to what Jesus was already doing in my life. That's the gospel. Now why this changes everything for your life, let me give you some practical examples. Remember, religion is achieved. Gospel is received. The Bible teaches gospel. Reason why this is important, when it comes to your obedience and your relationship to sin in your life, I, look, religious people would never admit this. That's why you're so religious, but be honest with yourself. I mean, you, you can't lie to you. I begrudgingly obey God because I have to earn his acceptance. And frankly, low key, I resent God for it. Don't lie. I, I know if you're religious, this is a problem for you because I've spent most of my life in this camp. Now I know that God loved me and I know he sent his son for me. But the problem is, is like I carried so much guilt and condemnation on my life because I just could never add up to the sermons that the preacher kept preaching. He preached in my hands every week and I'd be thinking, man, like I, thank you Jesus that you saved my soul and forgive my sins and that heaven is my future. But like in the in, the in between, man, the Bible just teaches me how to be a good little boy. And, and frankly, I'm falling way short of that. I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with the reality that like, because of the religion in my heart that like, man, I keep sliding back into the same sin and the preacher said, well, maybe you didn't truly repent. And, and what he means, like maybe you didn't feel guilty enough. Listen, if you, if you don't feel guilty enough about your sins, just find a local church. We will help you feel way more guilty about yourself because we've been convinced that that's gonna change your life. Enough guilt, enough shame, then you'll run to Jesus. But that's religion talking, not the gospel. The gospel says, I actually gladly obey God because I have freely received his acceptance and I delight in honoring God as a result of that. That whole fear posture of like, well, you don't want people to feel too assured in the finished work and the grace of Jesus because that's gonna make them run to sin. If you really understand the finished work of Jesus and his extravagant love for your life, it's not gonna drive you towards running towards more sin. You're gonna run towards him. Galatians 5 said it's for freedom that Christ has set you free so you don't have to be so easily entangled again by the yoke of bondage. Romans 6 says, should I continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Like that's, that's the whole point. Like really experiencing the gospel, you run towards Jesus as a delight, not as a begrudging thing because you can't seem to figure out being a good boy and a good girl. Go on to the next one. And this speaks to that a little bit as well. Religion is, I'm always uncertain about my right standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please God. And the result is anxiety and insecurity. And honestly, I fear God, but not in a healthy way. Not like an awe and a reverence of God. I'm actually afraid of God because I've kind of mixed together Bible and karma. And I think, which is a lie by the way, and I think that man, if I slip up one more time, man, God's really gonna get me this time. What goes around comes around. What the gospel teaches that what, what went around got accepted by Christ Jesus and he bore all the shame and all the guilt and all the sin that you had ever committed so that you could be set free. That's what the gospel teaches. God's not waiting until you foul it up one more time to really get you this time. Listen, God, God disciplines those whom he loves. That's what, that's what good daddies do. But it doesn't mean that he's just waiting for you to foul it up one more time like a kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass to smoke you. That's not the point. That's religion. The gospel says... 
I am always certain of my right standing before God because Jesus has already done enough for God to be pleased with me and the result is peace and security and I love God. Listen, there, there's dozens of scriptures that go along with this. Naturally, I wasn't able to put those on the screen because we wouldn't have room for the words, but I wanted you to see the words and blow it up big enough for you. But if you're struggling with some of this stuff, man, give us a call or send us an email. We'd, we'd love to load you up with some of the scriptures that the Bible teaches so that we can know, like John says, we can know that we have eternal life. We know that we're made right with God. How about your view of yourself? The religious person's self-view is constantly changing because it's based on how well, how well I do at any given moment. When I do poorly, I despair. I do well, I'm prideful. Yeah. The gospel says my self-view stays grounded in the fact that my value is based on what Jesus has done for me. When I do poorly, I'm humbled because I'm reminded of my need for a savior, but I don't despair because I have an all-sufficient savior. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And when I do well, I'm grateful because God is at work in my life, but I'm not prideful because it is more God's work than my work. You see the difference in the gospel lens and how much this will change your life and change your relationship to God and view of others and view of yourself, like how transformative the truth of God's word is, calling you out of bad religion so that you can actually experience the word of God and let it transform your life and enjoy walking in freedom. What about your view of others? Religion, since my identity is based on what I accomplish and how moral I am, I judge people who are worse than me and I'm jealous of people who are better than me. You do, don't you, religious folk? You do, I know you do, because I've been one of you most of my life. I already know the answer to that. Old judgy. The gospel says, since my identity is based on what Jesus accomplished for me and how moral he was, I sympathize with people who are worse than me because I need a savior just as much as they do. And I celebrate those who are better than me because their lives honor the savior that I love. See the difference? Now wonder, now wonder, Galatians 5 said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now wonder, Jesus reminded us that he gives abundant life, life more abundantly. Because I had grown up with so much religion in my life, like I'd hear the pastor say crazy stuff at church, like, there's freedom in Christ. I'm like, you're nuts, man. No, there's not. Because every time I show up here and I hear more sin-centered sermons and hell-centered sermons, like, man, I leave here with a pile of guilt and shame, so I'm thinking, man, I gotta do better. I just need to step up my game. Jesus has done so much for me, I owe it to him. And I wanna prove my love for him. I was so saturated. In religion, I just, I couldn't understand the reality of the gospel in my life and this idea of freedom in Christ. But when you see just these little nuggets of gospel truth that again are saturated all over the word, this is why John wanted us to start with this lens that it, Jesus, uh, eternal life is in Jesus and is given by Jesus. Like, so that we know it all starts with him. So that we can know that there is freedom in Christ Jesus. Not freedom to run back to sin, but like there is a freedom from our sin that we no longer are having to try to work for the grace of God, but we get to work from the grace of God. We're not working for the acceptance of God, we work from the acceptance of God. Religion says you need to work for his acceptance. The gospel says you're already accepted and he's crazy about you. So now move forward. By the grace of God, there go I. Like here we go, we're rolling on. You see, this changes everything for us. And this wasn't supposed to be a big mystery. We continue to debate 
and argue over this. And all the while, those who are not choosing to see the gospel clearly and that the Lord has not awakened their heart, I should say, to see and receive the gospel clearly, man, you're missing out. That's why I say this message and what John has, it's not just to the not yet believer. It's to the person who's been playing church for so long, they can't even see the gospel right in front of their face. You know, A.W. Tozier said this. I thought this was a great way to put it. Salvation from our side is a choice, or so it seems. But from the divine side, it is a seizing upon and apprehending of a conquest by the most high God. Our accepting and our willingness are reactions rather than actions. Because he's the one that stirred all that up. And this is why he tells us in verse 3 and 4, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants to remind us, like when you believe the gospel for what it was, the true word of life that is Jesus, that was offered to you by Jesus himself, Good news like that, it's hard not to share. I used to be afraid to invite my friends to church because all I could see is the world through a religious lens. All I could see was God through a religious lens. And honestly, I didn't feel like I had a very good sales pitch. Come to church, you're gonna hate the sermons, it's gonna make you feel miserable about your life. And if you do, by the grace of God, accept Jesus, it's gonna get worse from there. Let's be honest. But it was religion telling me that. There's a lot of bad Bible teaching, bad Bible believing. But man, now that I understand the gospel and I really know what Jesus meant by whosoever, man, it changes everything. I want to see a sinful world walk in to our churches and into our small groups, not so that they can be soothed about their sin, but so they can experience the gospel of Jesus, lay hold of their hearts and bring about the same transformation in him that he has done in me and done in some of y'all. Because it is freeing. Hey, I still got sin struggles, don't get me wrong. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, it no longer has power over my life. Its presence is there constantly, man. It, It drives me mad. And I slip into those old zip codes from time to time in my life, but the reality is I don't feel at home there anymore. The Spirit of God keeps calling me back to Him. That's how I know the Spirit is alive in me and drawing me back to Him. And look, that same Spirit who conquered the grave now lives within us. You better believe He can handle your sin issues. That's nothing. He can do that before His morning coffee. Come to Him. Receive the true and real gospel of Jesus Christ. He is wildly in love with you. And he is ready to bring about transformation in your life that you never thought possible. And, and it, is, it is not some dogmatic system of religion. It is a relationship with the king of heaven and earth that will bring about the transformation that you're afraid to come to Christ because you're afraid of what that means you're going to have to lay down and stop doing and stop being. He'll handle all that. You come to him and you, you bow your heart before him and you invite him to come and and just to come and be in the regular rhythms of your life. And you'll learn what it means to start to yield to the leadership of Jesus and all the stuff of life. He's gonna bring about transformation in you. He's the author and the perfecter. He can do it in your life too. If you don't know Christ, um, but now the light bulb has come on, I, I hope that even in the quietness of your seat and in your own heart, that you will confess that belief to him. 
confessing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says, and you will be saved. You'll begin the process of this transformation we're talking about. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I thank you that you loved us enough, not just to complete a work for us, but to complete a work in us and even kicking it off for us. I have so much more assurance in knowing that my salvation in you is secure when I know that I, I wasn't the one that started this whole thing. You began a good work in me and you are gonna see it into completion. Thank you for your love and your relentless commitment to us. In Jesus' name we pray.